Hi everyone, and welcome to Let's Talk Risk with Dr. Naveen Agarwal, where each week we talk about a topic related to risk management of medical devices. I'm your host, Naveen Agarwal, principal and founder at Achieve, where my personal mission is to help you achieve success in risk management. My guest in this episode is Christopher Gehring, who is a principal engineer in design quality assurance at a leading medical device manufacturer. Chris recently ran the Boston Marathon, the most important event for runners all over the world. Along the way, he learned many lessons that have parallel in the risk management world. So Chris and I talked about his experience and lessons learned that we can use for risk management in our practice. We discussed this in front of a live audience as part of a weekly LinkedIn live audio event. You're about to hear a recording of our conversation. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. I want to actually welcome Chris um, and invite him to uh, introduce uh, him to you. Uh, let us get to know him a little bit. So Chris, welcome. Uh, thank you, Naveen. It's uh, great to be here, and thank you for everybody who's uh, who's come on to listen. Uh, my name is Christopher Gehring, and I'm a principal engineer in design quality assurance at Insulate Corporation. It's a medical device company that manufactures um, uh, portable insulin pumps for diabetics, located in, Act in Acton, Massachusetts, in the United States. Um, I am a working as a, a design quality assurance engineer. My professional background of uh, the last 16 years is about evenly split between engineering and quality assurance. Um, and I have worked uh, professionally in medical device space, as well as the defense industry, as well as um, industrial products, consumer products, um, and yeah, those industries. And um, me personally, um, I love to run, as you uh, know by now. Uh, that's one thing that I really enjoy doing in my time. I love to go sailing. I'm going to go sailing this weekend. That's a pastime of mine as well. And singing. Nice. So, nice. Uh, a few. Yeah. So, Chris, uh, I know you and I connected through LinkedIn in one of these conversations, right? I think we were talking about systems engineering, system safety engineering one time, and you and I chatted about that. And after that, I learned that you were planning to run Boston. So, how did that come about? How did you decide to take on such a huge challenge? Sure, sure. So, um, I took a, 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 a sabbatical last year, about, about 13 months actually, it covered last year and this year. Uh, uh, basically a um, career break. Um, and uh, and during that time, I really prioritized uh, running as part of uh, the kind of my plan to, to get back into shape and, and just improve my health markers. Um, and uh, because things were getting a little shaky with uh, my, uh, my health markers, so to speak. And so I wanted to really lose a lot of weight and get back into shape. And I had been a runner in the past. I, have, I had run um, previously, I had run five half marathons, but I really um, did not um, to run those with any sort of discipline or planning. <laughs> um, it was really almost just kind of like I would, I would, you know, sign up for a training plan and do ten percent of it, and then just run and just get get across the finish line with, you know, with the grit, you know, the the kind of the skin of my teeth, and just through personal Herculean effort, but not with any good planning. So <laughs> this year or this this past season, starting in about April, I really dedicated myself to running. I joined a running club, which <laughs> is really helpful. And um, and started really training regularly for 5Ks, and then ultimately for half marathons. And I had a really successful season last year, mm -hmm. in which I um, achieved a personal best, uh, personal personal record PR 
um, in the 5K distance as well as I achieved two PRs nice. in the half marathon distance. Meaning, and when I say two PRs, I mean that I set a new PR in nice. October and then I broke it in November. Oh, wow. So, uh, so I had a really successful running season last year um, and it was great. And then I thought to myself, you know, maybe now is the time for me to pursue that, uh, that, that ultimate goal of uh-huh. doing my first marathon. I'm in really good shape right now. Uh-huh. I've done good times in my half marathon uh, distance. You know, I think I can do it. And um, I didn't, I'm not good enough uh, for those who understand running for, for the awesome marathon. You normally have to qualify. So you have yep. to get a qualifying time, but you can run it. Uh, the race if you join a charity team uh-huh. uh that's racing and, and and raise money for charity so that's what i did well that's awesome uh, so you did and uh, so i was raising money for the massachusetts pioneer infirmary in boston um and hospital and um i joined that team um my family has a, has a long-standing relationship with uh uh-huh. Sineer because my father was a surgeon there for uh, my late father was a surgeon there for uh-huh. his entire career about 40 years nice so um so i joined that team and then started training in december and um, so it was really kind of in terms of making the decision to to, to do the first marathon. Um, I thought I'm on you know, I'm on sabbatical. It's a good time for me to do it. I'll have uh, good bandwidth to train, and mm-hmm. the training is extensive. Yeah. And um, and now is now is the opportunity to do my first. That's awesome, and it's great that you actually did some good by raising funds at the same time. So Chris, I know you know having run myself uh, a couple of half marathons and one marathon, I know. A marathon is not twice the half, by no means. By no means, it's not twice the half. So how did you go about planning? And I, I would love to hear your thoughts on planning because we know planning is very, very important for risk. Yeah. Were there any lessons learned as you planned for your race? Sure. Um, yeah, I think the most important lesson for me that, that I took away is that because being a risk practitioner, I have to kind of, I would kind of go back and revert to, you know, what I understand about, about risk management and, and really it's just first of all adopting a risk-based approach to your training and and to your you know to to the race itself um and um this is obviously very important for and it's a foundational it's like a cornerstone of any uh quality management system standard that we know of including 1345 risk-based risk-based thinking um and um identify thinking ahead of, of things that might happen um you know threats opportunities and possible effects on your goal of finishing for me finishing the race trying to finish the race in four hours was my goal and um and then taking necessary actions that um you know allow me to 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 reach that goal um and And i'm I'm sure you were also thinking about you don't want to get injured right yes that's that's very important so yeah that was primary concern yep so apart from finishing and not getting injured was there anything like that was in your mind that you were particularly paying attention to in your training? What was top of mind for you? Um, I would say the top of mind is maintaining a training volume. <laughs> so a training volume, maintaining a certain um, number of miles per week. What I did was I um, I hired, a, one of the things I, I really believe in is it's, for, it, you know, this is, this is, again, this is true for risk management. Form, form a team. <laughs> risk management is not done by a single person or a single entity. And so I had a team of people helping me. I had a running coach. I had a, a um, strength and conditioning coach, and I had a dietitian. Nice. So I was pretty fortunate, um, but um, and I had a team working with me, and um, so we worked. We, I worked with my running coach to formulate plan. Plan was documented. It was sixteen weeks, and um, we identified how many miles I was going to run per week, what types of workouts I was going to do, and approximately when. There was some flexibility in terms of the days per week. If you know, if we didn't, if I didn't do a track workout on Tuesday, it's okay to do it on mm-hmm. Thursday. Mm-hmm. That type of 
but really the most important thing I felt was getting the running volume in. Mm-hmm. Um, for 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 um, um, endurance athletes like runners and triathletes, it's, it's it, the, the what we have. We talk about something called base conditioning, yeah. which is basically um, steady, relatively steady state conditioning at a relatively low intensity to build your aerob- what's called your aerobic base, your mm-hmm. cardiovascular fitness. This is very very important. And I was deficient in that area. I think I, you know, my my excellent half marathon times in October, November were largely due to my uh, anaerobic capacity, which mm-hmm. is a different type of training. But so working on that base conditioning is is really important, and you get that through running at a, at a moderate intensity for a fairly long period of time. Mm-hmm. And, and and so that's that was really paramount to my training. So that was the, the primary focus, and getting that that volume in week week in and week out. And um, again, as part of my planning. Um, I would meet with my running coach every week uh, mm-hmm. on Monday night, and we would review the previous week's results. And I was logging all of my miles, I was logging performance data that I got from my um, heart rate monitor, mm-hmm. um, and all of these things. And we would look at that data and identify how I'm doing. What are we going to, you know, what's look? Let's look at the plan for this coming week. And so um, I would say getting that, getting the volume in per week, and then having that interface with my coach every week were, were crucial. Nice. So you had a plan. You had yes. a detailed plan of what you will do. You had thought about contingencies and you were reviewing it with someone who could hold you accountable, right? That's yes. that's really awesome. So how did it go? Let's talk about, you know, how did it go? Did it go according to plan or were there any surprises during your run? Sure. I would say it mostly went according to plan. Mm-hmm. Um, there, were, there were a few surprises. Um, you know, when I got, I would say that... Um, in terms of planning my fitness level and getting to the fitness level needed to finish the marathon, I, that was there. Mm-hmm. And I realized that. I noticed that it was there during during the race. I was what I would do during my training is I would run um, my a lot of my runs at so called race pace. Mm-hmm. So what do you, if you're shot with shooting for a four hour marathon, my race pace is about nine hours and t- um, um, nine minutes and ten seconds per mile. Mm-hmm. I would do a lot of my runs at that pace. And so, and then when I got onto the course, that was fairly easy. Mm-hmm. It was not it was not too difficult to maintain that pace. So my cardiovascular fitness was on point. Um, and um, I had also one of the th- other things that I had done was um, kind of rehearsing uh, race day conditions. Mm-hmm. And you do that especially in what's called the long run. A lot of runners will do a so-called long run on mm-hmm. the weekend. Um, so at some point during the week, where they run up for an extended period, oftentimes it's two to three hours. And so on during those long runs, I would rehearse my race day conditions. Um, and so I would have my energy gels mm-hmm. that you need to maintain your carbohydrate while you're running, make sure you don't bleed uh, uh, or run out of carbohydrates as you run and those things. And so that really worked out because I was well fueled mm-hmm. uh, and I was well hydrated and I had plenty of um, electrolytes on nice. you know, in my body. So I, I wasn't, it was you know, was, everything worked out in uh-huh. those regards. What um, didn't quite work out was just that I ended up um, uh, I ended up getting injured during my training. Um, you know, these things happen, uh, but uh, the the injury was a upper hamstring uh-huh. upper hamstring tendinopathy, which tends to take a very long time to heal. Yeah, and so I actually ended up running the race injured. Um, and um, but uh, you know, with something like the Boston Marathon, you're not gonna you're not going to say no. You're to not going to give up. No, no, no. You're yeah, going you there. To, uh, if you can walk, the injuries, you're going there. Yeah, the injuries happen. Um, and and uh, and then I, I also, um, one of the things that hampered my, just kind of um, prevented me from getting the, the four-hour time was I ended up 
getting these leg cramps um, about halfway through the race. Um, and uh, it wasn't because I wasn't hydrated. It was because I didn't have electrolytes. Gotcha. Um, I don't know exactly why that happened, but they did get worse, <laughs> worse and worse as the race yep, went on. And then by the time I hit, by the time I hit the famous uh, heartbreak hill, yeah. um, uh, my legs had almost uh, stopped functioning. And uh, I ended up having to kind of uh, do these run walk intervals uh, up heartbreak hill just to, to get to the top of heartbreak hill but uh, um so i didn't anticipate that and well i didn't know that that was going to happen because i thought I'm, i, I practice my fueling strategy i practice my hydration strategy so i don't really it's a mystery i don't know why that happened well, um but i think that the I'm, I'm, i have a hypothesis my hypothesis is that i didn't get enough really long runs in training my longest training run was 16 miles and a lot of people do 20 mile training runs yeah um, and um and maybe even the reason why I didn't get those in was because of the injury. So I, it cut down on my, again, it cut down on my training volume. So yeah. that's just a hypothesis as to why I didn't, uh, why I, I cramped up halfway in the race. It's that I just didn't have mm-hmm. the experience that I needed in so what I call the deep water, the the, 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 the distance beyond 15 miles, because your yeah. body behaves in very strange ways. Yes. When you've been running, you know, when you're in mile 16 through uh, 20, it, it starts behaving really strangely. But you see, so, see what you're describing is kind of real life too, right? We are in post-market phase. We have yeah. a surprise. And many times we don't know what happened. Many times we don't know what information we should gather or what details we need to find. We have hypotheses, right? But we have yeah. to respond. So I'm now curious to hear. I know you are in, you are doing Boston, which is like an amazing experience. Your mind is is really driving you forward. You want to do it. But apart from that, when you discover that you had this this cramp going on and you had this heart break hill coming up, you know, how did you manage the rest of the race? What was going on in your mind? How did you respond? Sure. Um, what immediately? So I was um, I was running through Wellesley. Wellesley is actually my hometown. It's actually a town that's on the course, so it was a real privilege to be able to run through my hometown. Oh, nice! As part of the as part of the Boston Marathon, and it happened in Wellesley, and I. I, what I did, of course, is you, when you get a cramp like that, you, you just physically can't move. Yep. You have to stop and you have to stretch it. So I did that. Um, and my my original thought was, am I really, or am I actually dehydrated? I don't think so. I'm getting Gatorade at every stop. I was well hydrated at the start, so I don't, didn't really understand why. But I thought, okay, I'm just going to br- pull back the pace a little bit <laughs> and, um, and, and and just keep going. Of course, I want to make sure that I can finish in a reasonable time. <laughs> I, had, I, I was pretty certain that I was going to finish the race unless I suffer some catastrophic injury. Yeah. But um, I, so I just thought, okay, maybe I'll just pull back the pace a little bit, keep going. Hopefully it's just a isolated incident, but it, it did get worse and worse. The only thing that I could really do was just stop, stretch, and then maybe do a little bit of walking to, to get it moving again and see if it, if it, if it kind so of like, kicks in. So like slow down a little bit. Slow down and then, or even start. Well, by the time I hit Heartbreak Hill, I had to actually walk because I couldn't run without cramping up. So, um, it's it, so, you know, but you know, you can power walk. I mean, you, yeah. you can still keep going, you can still keep moving forward. You don't sure. have to run. And so I was power walking, and the power walking was actually very effective because I wouldn't cramp when I'm power walking. Yep. And I noticed that. And so, okay, maybe I just have to power walk for a while and then, um, you know, hopefully again, it'll go away and I will be able to get back into my running cadence. And my running pace, and it, it it seemed to work because um, by the time I hit I got onto the top of Heartbreak Hill, for those who know under, who know the Boston Marathon course, that's really the 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 hardest part of the course. And once you get off, uh, once you get on the top of Heartbreak Hill, you're really you yeah. know, the rest of the race is relatively straightforward and, and relatively easy. 
And so, um, so you were, that, so Chris, yeah. you are learning, you are adapting, you are making real time decisions, right? Yes. You are making quick decisions and you are learning from each decision you make and you are calibrating quickly. And I think that's a good lesson, right? We can't yeah, be certainly. stuck. We cannot get stuck in the post market phase when things are running and things are going on. We have to learn quickly and adapt. So guys, this is a good time for me to start inviting you on the stage. Please uh, go ahead and you know raise your hand. I'm going to bring you on one by one. And uh, David, I'm going to start with you. Um, please, please don't hold back because it takes me a while to bring you on stage. So you can raise your hand in advance and I can bring you up. Would love to hear from you because there are many, many paddlers. And as a runner, you know, I'm loving it. And I don't know how many of you are runners. So I don't want to talk about running too much. I want to make sure we address some of the thoughts that you have in mind as well. So uh, we'll continue our chat. But David, you are on. Uh, let us know what you have in mind. Thank you. Thank you, Christopher. I'm a little bit jealous. <laughs> I'm one of those out of shape guys that probably needs to take the same path you did. <laughs> so my question is about this. Um, it seems to me that what you did was when you discovered you were starting to have problems, cramps, pains, whatever, you mitigated. Correct. Is that, is that essentially what you did? Yes. Uh -huh. So my question is, did you have this mitigation strategy thought out ahead of time um or were you kind of operating on the fly and can you draw some parallel to say pharma or med tech in how that would work yeah so um i have mitigations for a variety of a variety of uh um, potential um situations that i might encounter um the cramps actually unfortunately was not one of them so that was a lesson learned for me because i didn't really encounter it during my training um, and so, but, um, I would say that, um, it's, it, it is, it is a, a, an important lesson because, um, you, you need to be able to, um, you know, throughout my training, I did what I would call scenario analysis, basically identifying what happens, what if this happens, what if that happens, Se like, uh, from hazard analysis, sequences of events, you know, what will happen if these sequences of events takes place. And I covered a lot of different bases and in particular, the fueling, um, and, um, hydration, electrolyte balancing, um, race day preparation. And so, but the, I would say that the, the, um, the cramping in the middle of the race was not something that I had actually, I, I had missed that one. So, um, but I think that, uh, it's kind of speaks to, from a professional perspective, making sure that your risk management is complete. Um, your hazard analysis is complete and failure modes are complete and they're, they're checked and reviewed often. Mm -hmm. Um, so um, that, that's how I would, um, but I, I would draw. I, but I would also add to that, Chris, that, you know, you don't have to wait for perfection, right? You didn't know what you didn't know. Yeah. What is important is your agility to respond also. Yep. So do the best you can, you know, make yourself accountable, have people help you, have a team, think of different scenarios, but don't be so obsessed with it that you don't focus on training, right? You have to produce the product. Yep. Do it. But be, yeah. be able to respond quickly. Yep, and learn from your learn. I'm a big um, I'm a big believer in continuous improvement, especially when it comes to risk management. Um, and so I identify um, things that have gone wrong or things that have been missed, and make sure that they don't happen again. So what I'm doing now is in my further training, I might run another I might run another marathon in October, the basic marathon. Um, uh, but I haven't formalized my plans yet. But one of the things that I'm going to do is make sure that I get in those really long runs. It, they're very important for a, a couple of reasons. They're important 
for it to, so that, again, so you have that deep water experience, so you know how your body's going to respond in those miles between 16 and 26. Yeah. But then beyond that, it's mental. It's mentally knowing that you can cover almost the whole distance. Most people don't run a full marathon in their training day. The max, most they'll generally do is about 20 miles, but it's important that you do that. You know what that deep water feels like. You know what your body is, how your body is going to respond. And unfortunately, yeah, my, my training or my, my training was somewhat hampered by my injury. I had to cut short um, some of my volume in my later later weeks of training. So Chris, I'm going to say that if you want it, if you want to make it easy, come to Florida. It's flat. It's flat. There's no heartbreak hills in it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so it'll be nice. David, um, you're, you're still here, so please stay. And uh, I want to open the floor for other people also, guys. Please join us. And it's a great time to have a conversation, share your thoughts, and uh, how you're feeling. But David, you are still on. So if you have any other thoughts or questions, please go ahead. Well, yeah, I would I would love to continue on. Sure, so, go ahead. As you can probably tell, Chris, I'm a bit of a newbie to the med tech industry. But I'm I'm curious about how important it is to have mitigation strategies thought out ahead of time versus what I think I heard Naveen say, which is you also need to have the skills to be agile and to, to think on your feet. And my guess is probably at that point, you need to gather intelligence from a lot of, a lot of your experts within the uh, medical device industry, if you're going to make a, a good decision of how to mitigate, is that essentially true? Yeah, that's certainly true. From my from my experience, it's really risk management is a team effort, and there is no I in team, and so um, it needs to it needs to um, involve a lot of relevant functions, not just engineering, systems engineering, and design quality assurance, but also regulatory, clinical, post market, and everybody needs to be involved in all of these from a professional perspective. All of these uh, processes and artifacts that are continuously evolving over the course of the lifetime uh, life cycle product everybody needs to be involved and i've seen personally how the lack of involvement usability engineering is a good another good example you uh, human factors the lack of involvement of a particular team for whatever reason maybe there's communication gaps between functions at a company or whatever reason leads to problems and um so to your point it it's definitely needs to be a team effort and you need to, especially in the post-market phase, you need to have agile processes, products, processes that are not too burdensome, but you can quickly respond to complaints and and whatnot, um, and uh, incorporate um, get incorporate feedback from from the post-market sphere back into your risk management, yeah. risk analysis processes. So I I think you know Chris and David, this is a good conversation, and I I believe intellectually we understand this, but in practice it doesn't happen, and I'm baffled by why it doesn't happen, and. I'm thinking here, Chris, it was Boston, okay? It was Boston. It was awesome motivation for you to do it. Yeah. Right? And you did whatever you could the right way. And still there were surprises. And I wonder, uh, and it's just, uh, you know, I'm thinking out loud here, guys. So anybody in the audience, please feel free to comment on that too. How do we motivate our teams to think like they're working on running a Boston Marathon? Because if everyone is motivated, teamwork will happen on its own. That's what I believe. So I'd hold my thoughts on that. Andy, you are on. Go ahead and, and share what you have in mind. Oh, thanks for having me on, Lavina. Christopher, well done. Um, Thank you, Lavina. Uh, listening, I mean, Boston's, um, I've been a fan of athletics all my life. I'm a, a, a sprinter, not a distance runner, but I know Boston is one of the great marathons, one of the great marathons in the world. So really, really well done, particularly with, with the problems that you had. Um, I'm interested, um, I'm a big uh, fan of, Agile with uh, with a big A. 
And I'm wondering what thoughts are on using Agile to satisfy the obligations of a, uh, a functional safety standard, which of course generally um, opens the first page and there's a big V diagram on the front page. Yeah. So I'm just wondering what your thoughts are. Um, yeah, so agile, agile, agile methods, and and uh, within the regulated environment of medical devices, it's uh, it, it can be difficult, uh, from my experience, to merge the two. It always ends up being, in my opinion, it always ends up being a compromise because if you if you've read or are familiar with the agile manifesto, yeah. it, it's it's its principles are basically um, completely contrary to uh, regulated <laughs> medical device developments, mm-hmm. um, but. A lot of business leaders and they, they want to their businesses to be agile. They want their software development to be agile, you know, and hardware development. Um, but uh, we live in a world where um, comprehensive documentation, which is the antithesis of agile, is uh, a requirement. Um, and so it's a, it ends up being, in my professional experience, ends up being a balance. You have to have controls and design and development. You have to have documentation, evidence that uh, processes have been followed, that regulatory compliance has been achieved while minimizing the burden of those controls um, in terms of the speed of development and the ability of developers to make decisions. Uh, in that, so know, um, so here's, what, here's what I'm thinking on this. And just, again, thinking out loud here is, uh, you know, Andy, you mentioned we're a sprint runner. And Chris, you said you, you train for, for marathon. Yeah. Right. We need both aerobic and anaerobic capacity to do it. Right. So agile, in my mind, is like sprints and you cannot run sprints forever. And you also cannot run slow, long distance forever. You have to find a training protocol that helps you combine them in the right way. One is not better than the other, in my opinion. How much agile you do depends on how much faster you want to run. So to me, it seems like a lot of judgment call and if I take a step back and forget about all these regulatory requirements, in my mind, I think it's a matter of trust in our teams. Can we trust our teams enough to do it right so that we don't create so many kind of constraints on them? Let them run. Let them also figure out when they're going to have a cramp, when they're going to f- have to f- fall back. So can we not do that? And I'm, I'm actually posing a very philosophical, hypothetical question to everybody on the platform here. Because we seem to be working in an either-or mindset. Either we can do agile or we can do, you know, this structured regulatory compliance. Why can't we do both? Because that's the only way we can win Boston. Yeah. So uh, a lot of my mind goes into like challenging this status quo, right? And we we should not have to think either-or. And uh, I know many of you guys are listening, so please... Please feel free to share your opinion. And uh, this is the whole point of this conversation, to talk a little bit freely. Uh, so Andy, you David- brought, you, you brought up the uh, the $10,000 question, Andy, is how to merge Agile with, uh, <laughs> right. with, design, Agile with design control and and, uh, and regulated medical device development. And I don't know if any company has actually solved that riddle fully yet. Well, what I'm trying to say, guys, is that do we trust our teams enough as, as the first principle? If we have trust, if we have faith, and if we have allowed people to do the job they, they are hired to do, why can't we do both? So to me, it comes down to like more of a paradigm of collaboration. We talked about that you know, a couple of weeks ago with Hugo. Yeah, we, t- we talk about culture, we talk about a mindset. So uh, how do we address that? And again, I know we are going in all different directions, but I would like us to kind of think uh, and challenge us a little bit to think about that. 
it, it's a really it's a really great, great question. I mean, I I work primarily in uh, in automotive. I have experience in aerospace, uh, industrial systems, and defence as well. I'm yet to work in medical, um, but the of course the question is the same: How do we make sure this is safe, and how do we make sure this is predictable and reliable? And and we need. Um, I mean, I know I need as much as I I've worked in these industries. When I have an idea, I feel better if someone else also thinks it's a good idea, or if someone else also thinks it's not going to be risky, it's not going to present uh, uh, any problems. Um, when I try to combine, uh, when I try to work in an agile fashion, because what I really love about agile is it's the quickest way of of evaluating something, and and of course we waterfall and, and V model. Um, all your validation it, it's literally by definition the last thing you do so it is at the most expensive point yeah. of having to change anything and and of course at every point every time you transition from uh, say requirements to design or design to implementation you're starting that um, you're, you're completing uh, one phase having learned very little about it yeah um because of course, how many times have you uh, produced a, a lovely requirements document? You think this is great, this is complete, this is cogent. <laughs> Ten minutes into your design, you're thinking, "What was I thinking?" <laughs> I think, yes. You produce a wonderful, complete design, and it's full of UML yeah. and models, and, and you think this is great. And ten minutes into your implementation, this is terrible. I made it so hard, um, and it's it's really hard. So I really like the tight cycles. But I absolutely get the point that, particularly with so much of these systems being embedded, um, we need to have so much of the infrastructure ready and working before we can start looking at the actual function of the device. And mm-hmm. um, so it's it's very difficult to be agile from day one, because of course your minimal vi- viable product is something that only perhaps a uh, software guy or a, an electronics hardware guy is capable of understanding. So that all of that development has to be done way ahead of time yeah and you have to be by the time you're working on the actual product the bit which you're selling the, you know your value proposition then all of this work you have to have it done already um and that that's an issue yeah um, and that makes it hard um but what i tend to do what i've had success with is just focusing on the obligations of the standards that we work to because the standards are you know, they, they've been produced. They, they've not simply been written down and, and distributed. There's this huge, huge expertise and experience yeah. there. And, and those obligations all add value to the work that we do. Um, and it is, it is hard, but I believe that there are, as, as Levine suggests, ways of, um, of, of satisfying the functional safety standards with these very tight validation cycles where we really embrace change we embrace learning one of the phrases i I live by is the truth is always good news Mm -hmm. even when it's disguised as bad news so because of course if if your product fails oh that's bad news but it's not because you instantly you you instantly then can start tracing something that's wrong with your your design or your Mm -hmm. implementation so clearly it's a tough problem right and i think that's why i want to issue a call out right we have so many people in, in this forum you guys come week after week let's learn from each other Let's learn from the best practices that we have become aware of, or maybe case studies that we are aware of. Let's bring them forward. Uh, let's continue to talk about it. And I know 
Uh, I see we are running short on time, so I want to be respectful of that. Uh, in a moment, I will let Chris, uh, you know, finish with some closing thoughts. Uh, but I want to really share with you a couple of key housekeeping points. The first one is, again, emphasizing your call out. This is a collaborative forum. Please raise your hand if you want to share your expertise and insights. And I would have you come over as a guest speaker. This is going to be very casual, no preparation required. Second, you guys know we're going to talk every Friday at 11. So you don't have to wait for a meeting appointment. If you're interested, put that on your calendar. And you will know what we're going to talk about uh, at about a week's notice. And finally, if you miss it, if you miss it, you know that I will be producing a recording of our conversations with key highlights on my newsletter. And you can subscribe to the newsletter using the link in the event description. So with that, guys, uh, I want to invite Chris again to share some closing thoughts and uh, see what we can take away from this conversation. Sure. Thank you, Navia. And yeah, I, th I think this is a great conversation. I'm really happy and uh, uh, it's an honor for me to be here. I appreciate everybody coming and listening to me uh, ramble about my marathon. Um, and uh, it's, it was a, what a really great experience. And, um, you know, that I really put to heart, take to heart now the old adage, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Um, uh -huh. And true when we're conducting, when we're risk practitioners and we're conducting risk management, it's a marathon, not, marathon, not a sprint. We're not going to solve all the problems of the world right away. But we might be able to get close to that through a long you know, period of time, and so, um, and I think that, yeah, um, we just need to, uh, for things like for, for in, uh, seemingly intractable problems like merging agile development with design controls, we just need to take the effort to work on it in a in a team setting to see if we can bring those those two two worlds together into an effective system, and um, and then uh, continuously improve. Um, on, on our, you know, our risk management processes and the same way that we improve as athletes, as runners, those, those of us who are runners or athletes continuously improve in our training and learn and adapt um, to, uh, from what we, what we learned through that training. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, uh, so I think that uh, I learned a lot through my experience running. I could go on and on about it, yeah. um, but um, I think that it's, uh, it was, it was really good for me. And, and, uh, and again, I, I, I take those lessons from that uh, that space, uh, the athletic space, into my work. And uh, we're glad that they did it. Great. Thank you, Chris. Thank you so much. And thanks, Andy and David, for uh, coming on stage and sharing your thoughts. Guys, I want to thank all of you for uh, attending. I wish you all the best. Have a good weekend. And we will connect again next week. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.